All right, welcome to TYT interviews. We got a doozy for you guys today. A legendary journalist, Matt Taibbi. We had him on recently talking about his last book, Clown President Dispatches from the 2016 Circus. Today, we're gonna talk about his new book coming out on October 24th, I Can't Breathe, A Killing on Bay Street. It's the story of Eric Garner and police brutality. Matt, welcome to the Young Turks. Matt, there's a thousand things to discuss here, but I, a lot of people think, well, okay, Eric Garner is a one off, and yeah, you know, I guess they should have let go of the hold earlier, but is this really systemic? That would be the number one question I feel like mainstream America is asking. So you answer that in this book, what's the answer? Yeah, of course it's systemic. And um, I think one of the things that I was trying to get at in this book is that uh, when people hear these stories, and there have been a lot of them lately, right? I mean, from Garner to Michael Brown to Sandra Bland to Freddie Gray. Um, what they tend to do is they tend to uh, have an emotional reaction. They they get a they have a take. They get angry. Then they sort of compartmentalize the stories um, in their minds, and they forget about them rather quickly. Uh, and these stories become sort of uh, tucked away as stories about bad cops, a few bad apples, and a few and a few bad police departments here and there. And what I found when I looked into the story is that. Actually, these stories are less about bad cops than they are about bad politics and bad policies. Um, they, the real tragedy in a lot of these cases is the sort of gigantic systemic bureaucracy that rests behind the police. Uh, the, the systemic way in which these cases are made to go away. Uh, and and the uh, strategic policing policies that are employed in big cities like New York City that make uh, incidents like this statistically inevitable. Well, so Matt, there's a couple of different uh, possibilities here. There's the one that you mentioned uh, that unfortunately most Americans who want to ignore this issue ascribe to a few bad apples. And a couple of bad cops, it's not a big deal. Um, although I don't know why they then they're then totally okay with all those bad apples <laughs> never being punished, right? Right. Like yeah, it's, exactly. It's almost as if they don't mind the bad apples. All right, but anyway, so that's one theory, and and you know I think that most progressives understand that's wildly uh, untrue, and and I so we can talk more about that in a second too. But the other two are. A little bit different, and and I think merit actual discussion, which is um, systemically uh, bad training, which is actually my main thesis, uh, mm-hmm. which is don't ever take a risk with your life, and the citizens' lives are not that important. So, right. so you know, if it's a one percent risk for you, uh, and a hundred percent chance that the other guy's dead. Who cares? Shoot him. Don't worry. We'll let you off. Okay? Because your life is so much more valuable than a citizen's life. The third theory is no, it's just racism. Or or that's not fair. It's maybe the second and the third theory. But I kind of want to see where you land on. It's not just that they're training them wrong to protect themselves and, and in an overly cautious position. It's that on top of that, no, they specifically target African Americans or minorities. So, where did you come out with that on your research? 
You know, it's funny uh, as a white reporter looking into this, um, I, I probably entered into uh, this topic more with the second explanation, with the idea that uh, this was bad training and bad policy. Uh, I had done some research about community policing in my previous book, The Divide. Uh, and I, I strongly believed that the sort of stats based policing strategies that we employ in most big cities in America uh, create a lot of negative incentives for cops um, and that cops themselves hate them. You know, if you talk to cops off, and none of them will talk on the record for the most part, but, but the ones that will talk to you, for the most part, they'll tell you that the, the part that they really hate about this job is the stats. Um, you know, they're told, Sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, you got to stop a certain number of people every month. You got to confiscate a certain number of weapons every month. We need to see what they call activity, right? And what that forces cops to do is jack up people who aren't really doing anything very often. And everybody knows, although some it's not always spoken explicitly, that we want you to do this in certain neighborhoods and not other neighborhoods, right? So you don't see cops stopping people en masse and on Wall Street, ripping open briefcases and pulling wads, you know, bundles of ecstasy and coke out of stock the pockets of stockbrokers. You do see them doing that in Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. So I I entered into this with the idea that yeah, it's bad policy, it's bad training. What, what you talked about, this idea that cops, it's beaten into their hands that you know better to use deadly force than to risk be killed, being killed yourself. That is something that all cops are, 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 are trained to put into their minds early in, in their careers. But on top of that, and this is the thing that I wasn't aware of, um, when you look at policies like broken windows and stop and frisk, if you look back, as far back as the early 1800s, you'll find almost identical policing strategies. They just always had different names. They were called vagrancy laws in some states. In other states, they were called impudence laws, right? These are the black codes. And in every instance, it's exactly the same thing. It's cops have legally meaningless excuses to stop people of color at any moment that they want. And, you know, what became intellectual chic in the in the 90s and the 2000s through stop and frisk and broken windows is actually just a rehash of ancient racist policies where you where there's no denying the race the race element anymore because because it's so completely like uh, you know the, the repressive policies that we used to see in this country. So that that's where the conversation gets super interesting. So it, it, some things are overtly racist and meant to be so. For example, the war on drugs. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so Richard Nixon's top aides have admitted we started the war on drugs to, for political reasons to target white hippies and black people uh, because they voted against us. Okay. Now on the other hand. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm a little sick today. Um, when you talk about the black codes and broken windows, I think that most people who believed in broken windows policies have no idea that it's racist. Right. Do you think they were meant to be racist? Is it subconscious racism or is someone going, yeah, you remember how we kept black people down through Jim Crow and the black codes, etc. Let's just do that again. I mean, 
How does it come about? You see what I'm saying? The core of that question? Yeah, no, look, I, I interviewed the guy who invented who invented broken windows, basically. This uh, this guy named George Kelling, <laughs> fascinating character. I think he's kind of a tragic character in a lot of ways because um, his original conception of, of broken windows um, had absolutely nothing to do with race. He was um, an administrator at a, at a home for uh, wayward juveniles in Minnesota uh, in the early 60s. And his idea was just that people who are unwell, who, who are in a, uh, you know, uh, an institutionalized situation, if there's a lot of disorder in, in the building, they'll tend to behave worse. So he saw like, an example was he saw one of the inmates break a window and because he had a lot of Freudian doctors watching the situation, they sort of let it play out rather than clean up the glass. What this guy did is he cleaned up the glass first and then observed the patients. And what he found was when things were clean, when they were safe, that the patients behave better. And all that, all that did is created in his mind this idea that when people are surrounded by what they see as the visible signs of order, they will tend to act out less and there will be less crime. So this, this definitely began in his mind anyway as a non-racial idea. But when it was employed later on in big cities, it took on a racial aspect. It was it morphed into something that it wasn't originally. And I think Kelling himself um, is is deeply torn about the application of broken windows because even he saw that it could that these ideas could be misused. Because, for instance, when 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 he first started talking about broken windows, he talked to people in Boston and in, in Southie, right? And he understood that their idea of disorder was seeing black people on the streets, right? Uh, and he didn't, he didn't want that to be identified with broken windows, but he understood that that was the potential, uh, a potential byproduct of, of these programs is that some people would define disorder as having to look at black and Hispanic people on the streets. And that's what that's exactly what happened. We had a former cop on here once and he explained, well, look, we targeted minority neighborhoods because in the rich white neighborhoods, there could be judges. And if we get a judge's kid, then we're in a lot of trouble. So is this an issue of a power dynamic more than a race dynamic in the sense that we're gonna just target poor people because they can't fight back. And if I need to make my numbers, I'm gonna go make my numbers over there because if I try to make them on Wall Street, I'm gonna get crushed. There's gonna be two, three, 18 super powerful guys there who are gonna try to get me fired, etc. Is that, I'm sure that's a part of it. Is that the bigger part or do you think that there are people behind the scenes thinking, no, I, we don't, we gotta make sure we keep black people down? That's a huge, I mean, it's definitely a huge part of it. And I think if you if you want a graphic example of that dynamic, just look at Cy Vance, right? Um, you know, he he doesn't prosecute Harvey Weinstein, he doesn't prosecute Don Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka because they're connected, because they're they're campaign contributors. 
who does he go after? He goes after her um, at that exact same time, a little tiny uh, immigrant-owned bank in Chinatown called Abacus Federal Savings Bank because they're not politically connected. So this, this, this is part of the calculus that goes on in every law enforcement official's head, which is if I go after group A, I'm gonna hear back from somebody about it. And if I go after group B, well, I'm not gonna hear back from anybody, at least not anybody who has any political juice. Um, so that's definitely part of it. Uh, for sure, if cops started you know, emptying pockets and, and knocking people down on, on Wall Street or the Upper East Side, for sure they'd hear about it. If, if, they, if they behave the same way that they did in the South Bronx and in those neighborhoods, it would be a scandal. You'd never hear, they would never hear the end of it. Um, so the invisibility and the, lack, and the lack of political power of the people in those neighborhoods is of course a major factor in all this. But an additional factor in all this is that the police, when they went into court to defend these policies, they explicitly said that they believed there was more crime in those in, in, in the non-white neighborhoods than there was in the white neighborhoods. They said that's where the crime is. Um, so this is a it's a it's a twist on an, on an old racial trope, which is you know we believe that certain pe people of certain races are more inclined naturally to crime. And if you think about Donald Trump's pitch to American voters, that's what he was saying about Mexicans. You know, we have to put the wall up because these people are rapists, and people people fell for it. You know, so that that also is a critical component to this. If you took the race out of it and only kept the socioeconomic situation, for example, what you mentioned earlier, the Southeast in Boston, mm -hmm. are the Southeast targeted as? More than rich people, they're white as well, right? In in Boston, but they're poor. Are they targeted more than rich whites in Boston? I would imagine that's certainly got to be the case. But are they targeted as much as minority neighborhoods that are equally poor? You see what I'm saying? You, what what I can tell you is that in New York City, where I did the bulk of my research, the overwhelming majority of the people who were stopped as part of the broken windows policies. And the numbers from year to year were consistent. They were always somewhere between 80 and 90% of the people were black or Hispanic. And this is in a city that's over half white. So yes, there are people who are stopped who are white. And I met a couple of them. In fact, I even went to jail to interview a few of them. But they tended to be you know, homeless people, people with drug problems. Um, people who were asleep in parks in the middle of the night. Um, what you didn't see, what you never see, and what you don't hear about anecdotally are people are upscale white voters who are stopped for no reason just as they walk down the street. You can talk to people in almost any black neighborhood in New York and every black male will have a story of being stopped. But you know, I lived in New York since 2003, and I've never been stopped by a cop. Never, I never even thought about it. Um, and that doesn't mean I haven't been doing illegal drugs during that time, or, or you know, haven't been under suspicion. But it does mean that um, in certain neighborhoods it's an expectation, and other neighborhoods it's not. To your point about doing illegal drugs, the famous stat that that we refer to often because it's so compelling is whites and blacks do marijuana at about the same rate 
and blacks are arrested at four times the rate of, of whites. That's not an accident, that's a macro look at the whole country. There's a, there's a reason for that, and some of it is socioeconomic. But I, I agree with you that some of it is also old school racial tropes. And, and by the way, you know, if you, the other benefit for the people in power of not stopping middle class and, and wealthy whites is that it makes the problem invisible to them. They've right. never been personally affected by it and have hence unfortunately very little motivation to help fix it. Right, and this is another another thing that I was trying to get at in the book, which is a lot of people sort of unknowingly and unwittingly endorse these policies. You know, they're sold to the public with sort of harmless sounding names like like broken windows or community policing. Sometimes it'll sound a little tougher, it'll come in a package but that they sell with terms like zero, zero tolerance policing. Um, but most people when they hear uh, broken windows or stop and frisk or stop question and frisk or community policing, what they, the image that they conjure in, the, in their minds is a beat cop going out into the community, meeting people, getting to know people by name. They think it's they have a positive connotation with those kinds of policies. Um, but in the re, the reality is, if you talk to again, if you if you talk to black and Hispanic citizens about what their experience with those policies means, that they'll have a very different description than white people will. I mean, if you I asked people in Tompkinsville and in Staten Island where Garner died, like to to talk to me about their stop and frisk experiences. And you know, the first person I talked to says, yeah, I was driving my bike home from school one day. Cops jumped out of a squad car, knocked me off my bike. They emptied my, my uh, book bag on the ground. Um, they left me sitting on the sidewalk and they got back in their, their squad car, didn't even help me up. That's, that's a stop and frisk to a black New Yorker. Now, a white New Yorker is certainly not gonna think of it that way, you know? Um, so. Uh, there, there's this huge dichotomy there. I mean, <clears throat> literally in this studio, uh, I've been to Santa Monica uh, here in uh, Los Angeles a million times, never even thought about having an issue with the police. But somebody right. on the crew here happens to be black and was in Santa Monica riding their bicycle, almost in the exact same uh, analogy that you used. And the cops pull them over and what are you doing here? And arrest and etc. for no reason, no reason right. at all. And right. so it's these two different Americas are maddening, not only because one side gets treated so unjustly, but also because the other side is completely oblivious to it. So right. that, that leads to the, I think the last part of the racial issue here. And then I also wanna talk about this specific case of Eric Garner. Is that, do you think that People are accidentally oblivious to it, as we just talked about. Like they don't even know; they, they never experienced it, so they they don't know that it even exists for most people. And or do you think they kind of like it that way? Like you know what? I, I like the order we have here. Those guys could be trouble if the cops have to you know knock a couple of people off their bikes to make sure there's no trouble. I'm kind of I I kind of like that. It, is is it more the latter? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think there's a, both a conscious and an unconscious element to this. If you look at cities like New York, and, and New York is like the crucible of all 
policing innovation. This is going back for the last half century. Um, what's the classic formula for getting elected mayor of New York City? It's it's a social liberal who's tough on crime. All right, so upscale white voters love people like Mike Bloomberg, who's an enthusiastic proponent of gay marriage, but also says you know that he's a he's a big supporter of the police department and um, and is an ardent uh, you know supporter of programs like Stop and Frisk, uh, and so. Yeah, white voters, I think on one level, they say, yes, we, we want the social liberalism. We don't want to feel like we're voting for, you know, for, for regressive policies, but we also like our property values, right? Um, we, we don't want to have to have to worry that the co-op that we bought for a million dollars is now going to be worth 920,000 because there's crime in my neighborhood. So crime is a big issue. It's a, it's a coded issue. And it's it was a, incidentally a huge issue in the death of Eric Garner. The place where he was killed, you know, a, a decade ago, you wouldn't have been able to find a cop in that neighborhood. Now, there's a string of new expensive condominiums across the street and there are cops there every day. So this is on some level, yeah, I, I think white America is kind of okay with a lot of these policies because deep, deep down inside, what they don't want is they they just want to keep those neighborhoods separated. Uh, that, that's my feeling. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of African Americans uh, who were killed uh, by police in this country and who are unarmed, uh, egregious, outrageous examples. Uh, why, why did you pick Eric Garner out of all those guys? Yeah, I never intended to write a book about this. What happened was um, after the grand jury decided not to indict the the, the police officer involved, uh, I, I I don't live that far from where this took place, so I drove over to Staten Island. Um, I went to the neighborhood Tompkinsville and <clears throat> just started talking to people in the park and. Um, People started telling me stories about Eric Garner, and I just found him interesting. He was complex and funny and um, contradictory uh, and uh, mysterious a little bit. And um, just as a person, I thought he was different than the way he was being portrayed in the media. And <clears throat> I decided to just sort of spend a lot of time there hearing what I could about who he was. And then that it morphed from there into this book about community policing and how he died and why. Who was Eric Garner? What was he like and what drew you in? Eric Garner was a guy who had rotten luck. He had spent most of his life on the wrong side of the law. He had been a crack dealer in the 80s and 90s when crack dealers were public enemy number one. When he got out of prison for for those offenses, he switched over to cigarettes and became a minor criminal at exactly the moment that Broken Windows was making the minor criminal the, the central target of policing in New York City. So he was always in the crosshairs. But as a person, um, he was he had a lot of fascinating character traits. Like uh, he was totally devoted to his kids. He um, to the point where. He, his clothes would literally fall off his body because he was phobic about spending money on himself. He wanted every dollar he made to go to his kids. So he'd have, he would have, he would wear rags out in the street. And that actually contributed, I think, to his death. 
because cops continually picked him up because his appearance um, was was so uh, uh, conspicuous to them. Uh, that and the fact that he was just such a big guy. He was 6'3 and 350 pounds. Um, but but yeah, he, he, he loved his kids. He, he was funny. Uh, and um, and he was he was contradictory. Like he was a criminal, but he wasn't violent by nature. Uh, there, there were a lot of interesting things about him. Yeah, I mean, I, that to me, that last part is so unsurprising. Uh, maybe because of the way uh, where my family grew up. Um, so we call it a criminal, but what other business opportunities are there in, in poor neighborhoods in America? Again, divorce from race, whether you're a Southie in Boston or, or you're black in New York, right? And then we provide this one economic opportunity which allows you to get really, really wealthy and there's no other opportunities. And then we blame people for taking that one opportunity. And I say that because my family comes from a border town in, in southeastern Turkey. My dad and my uncle didn't participate in smuggling because they're just like so deathly afraid of police, etc. Right? And thank right. God they didn't. But a lot of other people in the town did because things were randomly illegal. If you brought in toothpaste from Syria, that was illegal, but it made you a lot of money. So. Were they all morally bankrupt near the border? No, there was an economic opportunity by the border. And so, sure. so that's why I don't think that like we see like in our minds crack dealers like, whoa, oh my God, super dangerous. In reality, it's a guy who's trying to provide for his family, doesn't have any other opportunities and, and does it in, in this way. And, and then when he's down to loose cigarettes, I mean, we're, we got cops killing people over loose cigarettes. I mean, I can't think of a more minor offense. Um, yeah, it, it, it's ridiculous. Look, the New York City created the the untaxed cigarettes phenomenon by creating the highest consumption taxes on cigarettes in, in the country. I think it costs about fourteen dollars a pack right now to buy cigarettes in New York. So it creates an instant arbitrage for anybody who has a car and Garner. Um, he something entrepreneurial kicked into overdrive when he heard about this. He got out of jail and he heard about this. Uh, he, I guess, he missed the tax hike, and he started sending people down to Virginia, and they would bring back cartons of smokes that that they bought for essentially five dollars a pack. And then up here in New York, he would sell them for nine dollars a pack. And then if they were Lucy's, he was essentially making ten dollars a pack. Great business, right? And it was instantly brought into being by the fact that New York City just happens to have a high high cigarette taxes. Um, and the 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 interesting thing was, you know, Garner his whole life had been on the wrong side of racist sentencing policies, right? Like where you know, if a white guy gets caught with powder cocaine in his pocket, it's one thing. If a black guy gets caught with crack cocaine. Uh, the sentences are much, much harsher, and he paid for that. He went, he went to prison for 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 crack. In this case, the the everything was backwards. Um, selling untaxed cigarettes is barely a misdemeanor in New York State, and Garner even had a term for it. He called it felony money misdemeanor time, uh, and he he thought he had hit the jackpot. But then he started to get harassed over and over by the police, and it became a much more serious problem than he anticipated. Let's talk about the officer involved. Um, 
We, we didn't, uh, before he was as usual, uh, completely let go, no consequences as, as far as I can tell. But tell me if there was discipline uh, within uh, the police department to him. Uh, you know, we were led to believe that he was squeaky clean. So <coughs> was he and what wound up happening to him at the police department? Well, he wasn't squeaky clean. Uh, we found out thanks to a leak. Uh, last year that there were uh, a number of complaints against uh, Officer Dan Daniel Panaleo for um, uh, things like excessive force that had gone to the civil com uh, Civilian Complaint Review Board. He had also been sued uh, twice. The city had uh, paid settlements uh, to people who had complained about Panaleo's behavior. That we knew about uh, almost right away because uh, lawsuits are actually in the public record. But the thing that's interesting here isn't that Panaleo had a record and he, he was out on the streets when he shouldn't have been. The thing that's really interesting is that as citizens, we can't find out whether a cop is a dirty cop or not, or has, has a lot of abuse complaints. In most cities, that information is confidential. Even though police work for us, they're paid, for, they're paid by us, um, everything they do is on our behalf, it's all public. If you want to ask the courts or if you want to file a freedom of information request and ask whether this or that police officer has a lot of abuse complaints, you can't find it out. In this case, we only found out by accident thanks to a leak. The family never found out. Lawsuits that attempted to get at the truth failed. Even though there were there were judges rulings, the city still refused to hand over the information. So. Police enjoy this extraordinary amount of protection as though their behavior is private and confidential, even though everything they do is public. It's a very strange situation. People in minority neighborhoods have zero tolerance. But when it comes to cops, there's all the tolerance in the world, nearly infinite tolerance. And, right. and when you have a power dynamic like that, it is begging for abuse. You set up a system like that, you guarantee abuse. So, yeah, it totally encourages it. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, is Pantaleo, uh, Pantaleo um, still out on the streets? Well, do we know where he is today? He's still in the NYPD. He's on desk duty. Um, he's, so, he's still collecting benefits. I know um, in at least one of the years since he collected overtime <laughs> somehow, uh, even though he's not out in the streets. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're. Just to get back to your point, because it's so important. The whole concept of stop and frisk was not just about um, stopping lots of people and letting people know that if they went outside with a gun that day, that they had a good chance of being stopped by an officer randomly. Um, it was also about intelligence gathering. You know, every time the cops stop somebody, uh, they would ask you to empty your pockets, they would write down what was in your pockets, they would write down who you were with. Who your associates are, um, where you were headed, uh, what your business was, and so they were amassing this huge, huge amount of information. And these databases were open to every police officer uh, in the city. So if you wanted to find out who hung out with who and um, who was where and who was doing what, they had this massive amount of data. Meanwhile, if a cop goes out and they has a dozen abuse cases. Um, 
even somebody who's been arrested by that police officer and wants to find out what's in that officer's past can't find that out. Unless you have evidence showing that the, that the, the officer is a problem officer, it's a catch 22. Unless you have the evidence, you can't get the evidence. So it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. It's funny how conservatives who can't stand big government, all of a sudden when it comes to protecting government officers who commit abuse, love big government. <laughs> Think that, that big government should be able to do anything it wants to you and not be held accountable. A lot of irony there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, no, I mean, the, the, the broken windows policies are like the ultimate big government program because essentially what they're doing is they're throwing a huge net over over entire neighborhoods kind of sifting through everybody and let you know theoretically they're throwing the innocent ones back but it's the ultimate abuse of state power right um, and once you get caught up in the criminal justice system once you've been arrested um, and or arraigned and you've, you started to go through the system especially if you don't have money uh, to pay for bail and then now you've been in jail um, your whole life changes and this is the awesome power of the state you have to remember that so many bad things can happen to you before you get into Proved to have committed a crime, and in Garner's case, this was particularly poignant because he was killed in an incident on a day when he wasn't even selling cigarettes. Now we know that that's what he did for a living, but I talked to basically everybody who was there that day, and I know minute for minute what he was doing that day. He wasn't selling cigarettes that day, so um, the, the state has awesome, awesome power to to intrude in the lives of people, but that doesn't seem to bother libertarians when it involves this segment of the population. But in the past, you've written a couple of books about called Spanking the Donkey. <laughs> There's one on the campaign trail with Democrats and dispatches from the dump season. So, um, so we, we just talked about how the right wing is hypocritical on this issue because they, they love big government. Uh, how about the Democrats? So those are the ones that are theoretically supposed to stand up for minorities uh, throughout the country. Uh, are they doing that? And if so, my God, they seem to be enormously ineffective. Why? Yeah, no, I think that was another one of the things that was a huge shock to me um, when I researched this book. Uh, one uh, fact that I had no idea of when I started to look into this was that. New York State was really the, um, it was ground zero for the mass incarceration boom. This was where we started building prisons uh, over you know, a dozen at a time in the 80s. And the person who was responsible for that prison boom was Mario Cuomo, who's like the great liberal hero. And uh, these prisons were constructed using urban development programs that were uh, supposed to be used to create jobs in inner cities for minorities. So um, there are there's an awful lot going on with the Democratic Party in terms of the, the genesis of the mass incarceration movement, the, uh, the drug war, uh, the crime bill in the mid 90s, um, and the passage of these zero tolerance slash community uh, policing programs. I mean, look at Martin O'Malley, who was one of the, the candidates in the, uh, in, if anybody remembers, in the presidential race last year. 
he was mayor of Baltimore in a year when they arrested one out of every six people who lived in the in the in the city. Um, so these these programs are not a partisan issue. They are both uh, Democratic and Republican programs. Uh, and um, although I would say the Democrats are probably better and that their awareness on these issues is probably increasing, especially since um, the cases that began in 2014, Garner, Michael Brown, etc. Um, I would say that there's there's a lot of questions with the Democratic Party on this issue. Even if they're trying hard, one, I can't quite see it. Uh, right. and, and two, they clearly have not succeeded, uh, right. which pretty much summarizes, unfortunately, the Democratic Party for the last 40 years on any given issue. Um, so, all right, Matt Taibbi, really interesting uh, new book, uh, I Can't Breathe, A Killing on Bay Street. Everybody check it out, uh, comes out October 24th. Obviously, we'll have a link down below uh, for the book as well. Matt, thanks for joining us on the Young Turks again. Thanks a lot, Shane.